All right. Good evening. How are we doing tonight? Good. Well, I'm hoping we're doing well because tonight is going to be the most depressing class you've ever had. Because um, we're talking about sin, the fall of man, and our need for redemption. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of sin, let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So, you guys know that's a prayer, right? And, and I set that up purposely, actually. One of the best prayers that we do is actually the sign of the cross, that when we actually do the sign of the cross, that is a prayer in itself. So I wanted to start this class with that because many times we forget about that, just like it's easy to forget where sin comes from. It's hard to forget, or just as easy, I should say, to forget and to remember it's difficult what prayer is, and prayer is a conversation with God. Anytime we invoke the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are praying. When we walk into the sanctuary, into the church, what do we do? We dip our hand in holy water. We bless ourselves in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And at that point, we know, okay, that's a prayer. Or we at least bless ourselves, right? Or we drive by a cemetery and we may offer glory be or may do the sign of the cross when an ambulance goes by. But we forget how practical actually the sign of the cross is. That in fact, every morning and every evening, we should actually begin and end our day really with the prayer of the sign of the cross. Why? Because we are inviting God into our day, into our lives, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And at the end of our days, if we pray the um, end of day prayer, if you pray night prayer, if you pray the shepherd of God prayer, whatever prayer you pray at the end of the night, what's, what do you say at the end of your prayer? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that everything we do in our lives is not for ourselves, but is for God. What that really reminds us of when we talk specifically about the fall of man like we're going to this evening, it reminds us that when we were in the garden, we being humanity, Adam and Eve in the garden, before sin entered in, that's how everything was lived. Everything was perfect. Everything that we did was in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until sin entered into humanity that we began to do things in the name of whatever I feel like, however I want to do it, and whatever's the most convenient. Those are really the gods of secularism, if you think about it. It's the god of myself, or, or as the movie would have said earlier in the 2000s, the god of me, myself, and I, right? How do I make sure that everything's taken care of for me, or what do I get out of this situation? But before we get into the nitty-gritty of sin, tonight is going to be a very non-Catholic class because the majority is coming from this book, the Bible. Now, I say that jokingly, of course, because what's the number one critique that non-Catholic Christians many times have towards Catholics is that we don't ever use Scripture. We never talk about Scripture. Now, the fact that we at every Mass have a, a reading from Old Testament, a psalm of one of the 150 psalms, a gospel. We have an entrance antiphon normally that comes from either this or the Graduale Romano. Many of our hymns actually come from uh, the psalms as well or from other scriptural points. But we never as Catholics use scripture. So as a priest, I think it's important to make sure that we know what this is and how important it is. So we look at scripture, what is, when talking about sin and its evolution, what is the most important place to go to? What book? Genesis. Why? Because it's in the beginning. It's the genesis of everything. The beginning, the genesis, that's what that word means. It has nothing to do with Phil Collins and the band that he played in. Genesis has to do with the beginning of creation, with the beginning of man, with the beginning of sin, and with the beginning of the revelation of God to humanity. So when looking at sin, we really, I'm going to kind of take us on a journey this evening through really just the fall of man and our need for redemption. It's going to be the most depressing class, but then next week I get to start off how Paul Harvey always began, and now for the rest of the story, the next two classes after this will be kind of very Paul Harvey-esque in that we will be looking at um, the, God's promise of redemption, and then actually the kerygma, where the, the redemption really kind of fits in. So let's go to where it all started, the expulsion from Eden. And I'm going to read through this one probably more, more um, in depth 
than I will the other ones that I want to get to in, in Genesis specifically tonight, because this is where the root cause of every issue in the world flows from this scripture. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 24. And so I'll stop as we go through it like we've done in the past. Now the snake was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He asked the woman, did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now let's stop there. How does Satan initiate the conversation with, with Eve? He doesn't say God has forbidden you. He doesn't say you should eat from this. He says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any of the trees in the garden? That's how I hear it when I, when I read that. He, he puts that sarcasm that, well, I don't really know. He's trying to be smooth. He's trying to be slick. What he's really using is a very common thing that happens in our society today. He's trying to guilt us by making us doubt truth. And that's really at the heart of many of the sins in the world. That's at the heart of many of the issues we have in our 21st century world, is that we listen to doubt. How many times were you told in school, go with your intuition, go with your first choice when you're doing an, a multiple choice test, and then what did we do? We overthink it. Ah, C, you're always smart, you either go with B or C, so I don't know, it could be, what was your first gut instinct? Go with it. Because nine times out of ten, something like that, your intuition is going to lead you to success. Now, there's sometimes where intuition leads us the exact opposite way, too, and we'll find that really in, in this reading. But look at that when we go through these readings tonight from Genesis, how Satan tricks humanity. Not the fact that he does. We know that sin exists. We know what happens in these stories. What I want us to do is to see how these stories are still being played out in our world today. And so the fall of man is still prevalent in our lives, despite the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ and that promise of redemption we'll speak of next week and the week after. And it's because sin is still prevalent in our lives. So the woman answered the snake, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat it or even touch it or else you will die. Now what's interesting is she gave more details. She began to, in her response, start doubting what did God actually say to us? Well, it's this fruit that we should not eat from, from this specific tree in the middle of the garden, and you shouldn't even eat it, you shouldn't even touch it. Now, what's interesting is anytime we talk about this story, do we ever hear the word touch it? No. Where did the fall of man begin? When we ate from the fruit from the garden. Well, if you listen to Eve, it's you shall not eat or even touch of it, lest you die. But the snake said to the woman, you certainly will not die. Again, I'm using my own inflections, kind of how I understand this. You certainly will not die. God knows well that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like gods who know good and evil. Now again, how was Satan introduced? A wise, cunning, shrewd serpent. He's a used car salesman of today. Now, that's a bad name for used car salesmen, and they are not bad people, but, but it's the same technique many times that we use. We try and take reality and twist it. We try and tell people what they want to hear. Well, if Eve's fear is, I will die, I want to take your fear away, right? You certainly will not die. That's the first words out of his mouth. It's not that you aren't supposed to touch this tree, you aren't supposed to eat of this. You will not die. He tries to alleviate our fears. So ironically, he's not trying to be insidious. He's not trying to just blatantly come out and say, do this, because Satan rarely does that. He's trying to tell us what we want to hear. How many times when you're a child do you get in fights with your parents because they don't tell you what you want to hear? 
My homily this last Sunday was all about tough love, right? We get mad at our family when they give us tough love. Though we know what's right, we get mad at them. Well, Satan doesn't give us tough love. He makes everything seem convenient, even if it quite literally leads us to hell. And we think, oh my gosh, this is such an amazing thing, isn't it? Well, let's continue on going through. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom. So again, looking at the conversation of what Satan just said and Eve's response, you're going to die. I'm going to die if I even touch this. You won't die. Oh, it does kind of look pleasing, doesn't it? How many times do we fall into that same trap today? You really need to buy this car insurance or your car warranty, extended car warranty? You guys still get those phone calls? Your extended car warranty is out of... Or Norton Antivirus, the emails we get were those. I get like 50 of them a week of, ah, oh, this has already been charged your credit card. It's like, that's not my credit card. <laughs> I don't know who you're going to or whose account you have because I haven't had that in like 20 years, but that's besides the point. But we're using these things to try and tell us what we, what we want to hear or fear or put into us that fear of the things that we are most afraid of. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, when I talk about this in the high school, it's always fun to say, see, why does sin exist? Because women fell to their, the, 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 the ultimate flaw of getting what they wanted. Don't give them what they want. We don't have to worry about sin. That's not true. That's not true at all. Husbands, do not make that mistake. If you do, the confessional's back there. See your wife later. Because she's going to have to forgive your sin for that because there's only so much I can do. No. But many times we look at this and what is the first thing we want to do? The first thing we want to do with this is point the finger. We want to pass blame. And in fact, that's what happens when we look at what happens next. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. So they f- sewed fig trees together and made loincloths for themselves. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So before we get to the blaming, they get to the point where they're like, ooh, can't show these things. This is shameful. Which is why with the theology of the body that Pope St. John Paul II came out with and Christopher West's series that really opens up that and bears a lot of fruit, his response to it, this in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked with shame. As humans, we were created to be, we were created though to be naked without shame. That shame, what it does is it tells us that what God has created is not good. Do you see that, that slightness that's in here? How, how quickly that turned? From your eyes will be open and you will be given wisdom, and the wisdom we receive is what God has given me is a bad thing. Interesting how it follows in that same process many times. If God really loved me, he would give me what I wanted. What I wanted was wisdom. What I didn't want was reality. What I wanted was what makes things convenient. Convenient. What I didn't want to do is have to work for things. What's the first thing they do? They have to put themselves to work because now they're living lives of shame, how they see it. And so continuing on, the Lord called out to man and said, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear is another tool of Satan. And fear enters in in all of the stories that we're going to have today because we doubt that God is who he says he is, that we are who he says he has created. Through doubt, the next step of sin, like the five stages of grief, you've got doubt, and now you've got fear. So it's no accident then when the divine mercy was revealed um, to Saint, coming to me, Faustina, thank you. Kowalska was the name coming to mind. To Saint Faustina, that the image of the divine mercy, what is the inscription on the bottom? Jesus, I trust in you. When we trusted in God, 
we had no fear. When we put all of our faith in the Lord, we have no reason to doubt. See how this is building really gradually, but the more we look back, it's like, oh my gosh, it's just so obvious. Why didn't I see this? Because Satan doesn't want you to see it. Satan doesn't want you to see how easy it is to manipulate us because then we either feel like a fool or feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I fell for that. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. No, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, crap, I've gone to confession how many times in my life? Man, he continues to fool me. What type of fool am I? And then we get into that self-hating rap after that. So, he heard him in the garden, but he was afraid because he was naked, so he hid. How many times when we recognize that we have done something wrong, do we hide in shame? Worst case scenario always pops in our head, doesn't it? Oh no, I stole something after dinner from the pantry. This was my big sin growing up. I'll confess it to you all. Because I hated my parents' cooking. I hated my dad's cooking. My mom didn't cook. I hated my dad's cooking because I was a very picky eater. You think I'm picky now? <laughs> I would have like five meals and that was it. I wouldn't even touch a cheeseburger. If I was going to have a steak, it had to be cooked well done, and I had to not have steak sauce. I had to use ketchup because ketchup is the only condiment that actually existed to me. I don't do mustard. I don't do mayonnaise. I don't do ranch. <sighs> Still don't do any of those. It was, I want my meat, I want my potatoes, I want my cheese, I want my butter, I want my bacon, and I want my ketchup. That's it. I don't know where I was going with this, but that was important. <laughs> Telling you it was important now. Um, and so we are then in shame, that's where it was, in shame, I would be sent to bed with no snacks for the rest of the night. You have to forgive your kids that punishment. You have to go to, if you don't eat what's on the plate... You have to go to bed with no snacks. Do you see my belly? I found the snacks. And then I had to find them when the bugs were in them because I never cleaned up afterwards. And some of the things that, that, that a fat little kid, back when I was even skinnier than I am now, would eat like finding the roll of cookie dough and eating the whole roll of cookie dough because I didn't get to eat dinner. Or taking the frosting and, what is that on your finger? Nothing. We just take the whole thing of frosting, and you guys know some of the kids did this. That was me growing up. And so my biggest sin when I went to confession growing up was I stole food from the pantry. Why did I do that? Because I was so shame-filled that I didn't eat what was given to me. Sound familiar to what's happening in the garden here? I thought I needed something more. Now, what were my parents trying to teach me? They were trying to teach me discipline. Name one child in human history that likes discipline, and I'll show you a liar, because none of us like it. Name one adult that truly likes discipline for themselves. For others, yes. If you're type A, you're OCD, everything else has to be disciplined, but I can do whatever I want to. Or at least that's how I've grown up, witnessing people. And so when we allow shame to take over, we hide. Think of your sins. Why don't you like to go to confession? The number one answer, I don't want to confess out loud what I've actually done. That's the definition of shame. If I don't want to tell another person what I've done, I am not feeling guilty. Guilt is good. Guilt leads to change. Shame leads to bottled up emotions. For a long time, we have lived in a world of shame. We continue to live lives of shame. I'm not saying, hey, go out there and tell everybody your sins. That's not what I'm saying. But it's how does that shame make our actions positive or negative out of them? Oh, well, it's not going to affect anybody else, right? Those personal sins, those private sins, they aren't going to affect anybody else. Have you ever heard of transference or deference? In, in psychology, if dad had a bad day at work and he takes it out on the kids when he gets home, why does he do so? Because instead of taking it out on his boss or his coworkers, he takes it out on people that he has control over? No, it doesn't affect us in any other aspect of our lives, right? Again, Satan tells me I'm a good person as long as I do what I think is best. And we convince ourselves of that so that when we do something shameful that we should feel guilt for and try and make recompense for, we don't. 
because we don't tell anybody about it. We don't talk about it. That's why when the diocese two years ago, start, three years ago now actually, started a program called Safe Haven Sunday, I was the first person to sign up. I don't know if we've had it out here. We didn't have it this last year or this last spring. But I've been talking with Dr. Schimpf and um, Sarah Schimpf about making sure that we're bringing it back. It's like, dude, as soon as you got it, let's bring it back. And it's all based on the theology of the body. Again, gets us back in the garden, being naked without shame. What is Safe Haven Sunday all about? Talking about the evils of pornography. Talking about the evils of masturbation. Talking about how the sexual revolution has changed the way that we think and process things. Why is that important, Father? The church should stay out of the bedroom. The problem is we're taking the bedroom everywhere else. So we have to have those conversations because every aspect of our lives is blessed by God when we allow it to be blessed by God. And when we don't allow our lives to be blessed by God, we fall into shame, we fall into doubt, we fall into fear. So doubt leads to fear, fear leads to shame, shame ultimately leads to sin. Heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Now, if I were Adam, I'd be like, I talk, she talks. Well, she didn't tell me, and I didn't tell me. Oh, no, God knows what's happening. Like, literally, God, you know what is happening here. Oh, crap, what do I do now? Then what he do, did he do? He did the thing that we do most often when we get caught in a lie, most often when we get caught with a hand in, our, in the cookie jar. What is the first thing we do? Deny, deny, deny. I didn't do it. The most popular phrase in my household growing up was, I don't know, I didn't do it, to which my dad responded, man, if I can find this I didn't do it guy, I'd be a billionaire. Or, I don't know, if I could find the person that, that, that does know, man, I'd be the most important person in the world because everyone would be looking for them. Now, sometimes it's valid. It's like, I actually didn't do it this time. But we fall into the trap of the boy that cried wolf, right? How many times do we lie and lie and lie and lie and lie and we finally tell the truth? It wasn't me. Uh-huh. Why don't you believe me? Because you've lied to me all of these other times. Again, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So you're seeing how this is becoming a systemic issue from doubt to fear, from fear to shame, from shame to sin, and a multitude of sin. Who told you you have eaten the fruit of the tree? The man replied, the woman who you put here with me. So he's not just blaming Eve, he's blaming God. Sound familiar? It's not my fault. I had no role in this whatsoever. You set me up. You put me into this situation. You, 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 you. Not taking any responsibility. The woman who you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, so I ate it. Now, he does, that's the only give that he gives. Yeah, I ate it, but only because you put her here with me and, I mean, she's a temptress. It's all her fault. And then she gave it to me. So, I mean, someone gives you a gift, you can't say no, right? So she really did the sin. She touched the tree. She took the fruit off the tree. All I did was eat it. I'm not, I'm not that bad, right? My sins aren't that bad, right? I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. My sins aren't that bad, right? I mean, yeah, I was complicit in it all, but I didn't actually do the action. Again, it's coming out in other ways. The Lord God then asked the woman, what is this you have done? How many times we use something like that with our kids? What have you done here? We use it with dogs now, and, and now they're like, huh. you can see the dogs begin to process shame and guilt. It was interesting, there was a meme on, it was Instagram or TikTok or something like that recently, where there were these three dogs, and there was a shoe that got eaten. And who did it? All the dogs were like, did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? So he takes out the shoe, takes a stuffed dog, starts beating the dog with the shoe. The two dogs point and start poking the one in the middle and start blaming it. If that's not a human response, I don't know what is. Well, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Oh, of course you didn't do it. Well, if you don't tell me who did it, you're all in trouble. It was him. We fall and collapse every time when we could potentially be getting in trouble for something we didn't do. 
That bro code only goes so far, right? The woman answered, the snake tricked me, so I ate it. Now, she didn't say the snake tricked me, so I took the fruit, I ate the fruit, and I gave the fruit to, like she gave over details to Satan, but when it comes to God, let me figure out what the least objectionable of these sins is, and I'll cop to that. She didn't cop to taking the fruit. She didn't cop to leading another person to sin. She copped to the same thing that Adam copped to, right? Why take more punishment and more blame when, hey, he gets off with just eating the, eating the fruit, not an apple, eating the fig, probably, in Mesopotamia at that time. He just ate it, so I'm going to say I just ate it too. I ate it. Then the Lord said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you among all the animals, tame or wild, on your belly you shall crawl, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her. See, Indiana Jones got it right. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? I'm on board with that. I don't do snakes. We've had snakes here that we found, and it's like, Amy, Katie, you take care of it. I'm in the other room hiding. In fact, Kathy texted me one day and said, Father, we've got a snake here. What do you want me to do about it? Go find a broom. I'm in my house. Oh, would Father, you come take care of it? You're a big boy. You're a big girl. You can take care of this. You got this. She's like, by the time I got over here, it's gone. I was like, oh, thank God. I think Tim ended up taking care of it or someone did. But he was like, I don't want to deal with this. To the woman, he said, I will intensify your toil and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children, yet your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, blah, 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 blah. We go through all those things. So ultimately, what do we get from the fall of man in the garden? We get that we are easily persuaded when we don't trust in God. We fall to doubt. When we allow ourselves to doubt what we know to be true, so truth Twisted is a definition of perversion. When truth is perverted, we begin to doubt. Well, it sounds good, right? Have you ever played that game, Two Truths and a Lie, and it's really hard to figure out what that lie is sometimes because it's just close enough to being true? That's what Satan does here. So We play Two Truths and a Lie with everybody in our lives, and so we doubt, and then we become afraid. We're afraid, oh no, did I make the right decision? How much time have we spent playing the what-if game in our lives? Has anybody never played that game? Please be honest. Because I want to know what you did. You've never played the... Never. Like, never thought of, I wish at any point in my life I had, I had made a different decision or what would my life look like if I had made a different decision. You were living the life of holiness and I got to follow it. <laughs> because that, for me, was my first three years of seminary. My first three years of seminary was, I was on the border of, what if I had done this differently? What if I had gone to seminary right out of college? What if I had listened to my mom and gone to community college instead of being too prideful to say, these words came out of my mouth, community college is for those that can't make it in the real world. I was a prideful little four-letter word. I learned from that because what happens before the fall, that prideful thing, there's a reason I failed out of college after a year and a half. Part of it's my pride, part of it's my laziness. Part of it is I cut God out of my life. So all of those things kind of come up to it. But yeah, there were definitely times where I looked back those first years. What if I knew growing up that I was going to be a priest? Why even date in the first place, right? Or I know I'm going to be a priest. Let's date more because you're not going to have that opportunity after you're ordained. All of those what ifs came up in my mind. In fact, how many movies have been produced with a what-if mentality? My favorite movie growing up, we had to watch it every Thanksgiving, though it's technically a Christmas movie, depending on who you ask. No, it's not Die Hard. It's not a Christmas movie. It's a Wonderful Life. We love that movie, don't we? What's at the heart of that movie? The question of what if. The heart of the movie that is one of the greatest movies of all time is the question of what if. The question where we doubt our decisions, we doubt our importance in humanity. What if I had never existed? And then we see the positive things that come out of it, because the reality is every life is sacred. Every life has meaning. Every life, whether we realize it or not, does touch another life in a positive manner. I'm really interested. There's actually a movie that just came out last week, I think it was. I haven't seen it yet, and the name's not coming to me. But it's this movie where this kid was really depressed, and he had 
written a note or found a note that was put in his locker, or put in this other kid's locker, and the kid ends up going home and committing suicide. But the family, when they find the body, find this note, and it was signed by this other kid. So they thought, oh, this, this kid was my son's only friend. And so then he plays the, huh, how can I make a difference now? It's kind of how the movie's kind of premised. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know the merits of it. But I'm interested to see how he looks at the what-if question in the future versus in the past, how we normally look at it. But at the heart of it, we have to look to, and I probably quoted this at least twice since I've been here, but it's one of my favorite kid movies growing up. We really have to look to what Shifu in the movie Kung Fu Panda said. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow's a mystery. Today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. Cheesy and tacky as it may be, it's true. Yesterday's history. You cannot change what has happened in the past. We can only learn from it. We can only grow from it. But how many times do we refuse to live our lives today because of something we've done in the past? We have self-identified. We are self-hating sinners is what it really comes down to. We have self-identified ourselves by something in our past that we look in the mirror and we see that today. We've allowed doubt, we've allowed fear, we've allowed shame, we've allowed sin into our lives, and because of that, how could God ever love me? How could God ever forgive me? Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the one unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, believing God does not have the ability to forgive my sins, therefore I don't ask for his forgiveness? That's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. The reality is, it's very hard to actually commit that sin. Because at any time in your life, you can go to confession. That is actually only an ultimate sin that can be committed. You can't commit that in your life because if you ever go to confession, you don't actually commit that sin. Because you're going to confession in some hope of sin being forgiven. The problem, though, is we don't really struggle with the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What we really struggle with, and I can't call it blasphemy of the person, but that's really kind of the shape that it takes. We take, I guess, maybe blasphemy of the dignity of the holy person, uh, 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 dignity of the person. It's not that we don't believe God can forgive us. It's not that we don't believe others can forgive us. We struggle to forgive ourselves, and we believe that because we can't forgive ourselves that we can't be forgiven. And if I can't, believe my, can't forgive myself, I then have to be punished. And if God's not gonna punish me, I'm gonna make sure I get caught. Because that way, it's out of my hands. Someone else can give me a punishment. And that sounds twisted, doesn't it? But how many times have we fallen into that trap? And I include myself in that we, because I was very self-destructive as a kid. But we fall into that same trap that happened in the beginning in the garden. And so let's see what happens as, we've only got 20 minutes left, didn't expect to spend quite that much time on that. Let's see what happens after we get out of the garden. Let's look at Cain and Abel, chapter four of Genesis. All right. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground, while Abel, for his part, brought the fatty portion of the firstlings of his flock. Why is that important? Cain gave a gift to God. Abel gave a gift to God. Good, right? Yes, but. Remember last week we talked about anything that happens before the word but, just kind of throw out. Yes, but. Cain gave from his excess. Cain didn't give thanks to God for the blessing that he has. Cain was afraid, and this is what is read into this scripture so many times, Cain was afraid that he would not have enough if he gave the best portion to God. Now, the fact that God gave him everything that he has doesn't come into his processing. What does Abel do? Abel gave, for his part, he brought the fatty portion of the firstling of his flock. He gave him the best of the best. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about, Gen or talking about Luke chapter 15 and talking about the prodigal son and the, that the father looks up with compassion? What does he do for his son? He slaughters the fattened calf. He gives the same gift to his son that Abel gives to God. 
There's no coincidence there. He gives because he knows everything he has is because of God. How many times do we give from our excess? How many times do we fear giving anything? Oh, well, they're just going to squander the money. Oh, well, I don't like how this is being used. Oh, well, if I give my time, then that's going to make it so someone else can't give their time. Or why doesn't everybody give their time? I can't affect the change in others. I can encourage it. I can call them to change. I can only affect my actions. That's where the serenity prayer comes in. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I cannot change others. The courage to change the things I can. I can change how I look at the generosity of God. And the reality is we cannot be more generous than God. I've tried. I've failed every single time. I give all my time and think, oh my gosh, I'm not going to have enough time to do this. I get a random week off. I go and, and, and give financially in a way that's like, man, this is really stretching me. And then I end up having two or three different events where I get called to speak and I get a um, stipend that I wasn't expecting at all. It's like, oh my gosh, why, is, why are you giving this to me? Just because. Oh, because you listen to God, got it. And then how many times do we give in service where we can never be outgiven? We go on mission trips. We go to volunteer at the food bank. We, we go to work at, at, at the soup kitchen thinking that we are giving, but we end up receiving 10 times what we've given, Right? We get to experience charity. And that's what Abel is experiencing in that reading here. He is giving from the best of what God has given to him. Do we ever look at what God has actually blessed us with and ever asked ourselves how we could function without it? How can we function without, and I'm just throwing things out there. This is not a personal attack on anybody. Do not take it that way. How can we do without our extra Starbucks? We don't have Starbucks. Yeah, we do have Starbucks. No, it's not yet. It's almost here. How can I deal without my Starbucks every morning? Or my Dunkin' Donuts or my um, 66 coffee donuts, whatever they've got there now. Or how can, I, how can I survive without my Frosty, my snow cone? I haven't had a snow cone in two months. They closed last week. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking. My diabetes is fantastic right now, but, but, but it's the, how do we give up those extras? How can I live without that extra steak, without that extra beer, without that extra whatever it may be, trip, without that extra, because we see it as extra, right? And sometimes that's what we use to give back to the Lord. We're like, you know what? I can do without this. One of the interesting things to me the diocese did in the last five years was the capital campaign, the One Church, Many Disciples campaign. I think we're about three years, three, I think we've got two years left here. Um, so I've only got a year, and a year, year and a half left um, with my donation. We started in uh, phase two. But what's interesting is I gave what I was asked with that. And I'm not saying that to flaunt that, but it's, I was able to at that point. There's been times since then where it's like, I have no money. I had to go get a five-figure loan from my family to pay off my credit card. But I kept giving to that. And I asked myself, how can I keep doing that if I have $10,000 of credit card debt? But the money has always shown up, always shown up. Even in the months this summer where I told my mom, hey, I can't pay you this month because I've got another root canal coming up or I've got another car issue that's happened, or I've got another and another and another. Satan trying to hit our generosity and give us the excuse to not give back. But what I've given to the One Church Many Disciples, I don't even think about because it, it comes automatically out of my credit card, out of my bank account once a month. Do the same thing for the church. When I give there, it's like, man, I don't know how I can live without this, but I can. But how many times do we use well, I need this, I need that. And we don't look at how we're frivolous, frivolously spending our time. I get an update every Sunday of my screen time. I'm ashamed every week. My average screen time is between four and eight hours a day, depending on the day. 
Now, some of that is because I'm checking emails, because I'm out. When I go out and eat, the reason I rarely go out and eat with parishioners is because that's when I get my best emailing done, my best texts done, my best work done, is when I'm eating, because that's where, for some reason, that's where I got my best work done in seminary. It was at the pizza bar, listening to music, watching football, and drinking a beer. An ADD, it happens. Um, but, but in that, it's the, how can I give my best attention to God? Do I give God five minutes in the morning because that's the only time I can give? Awesome. Do I give five minutes throughout the middle of the day because that's all I can give? If it's all you can truly give, give what you can give in prayer. Give what you can give in time, talent, and treasure. But we have to be honest with ourselves as Abel was of what we can give. Cain copped out, and we, I fall for that all the time too. We cop out and saying, I cannot live without this. Remember how we lived without cell phones? Every once in a while for Lent, I'll give up like Facebook, not all of internet, like Facebook, and I feel like my life is over. And then I get it back and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I ever survived that. The, only, the, the, the number two thing that I've given up in those times that was like the worst thing in the world was Diet Coke. Like, like, because that's an, an actual addiction, because I was addicted to caffeine. So I gave up all caffeine for one Lent, and then I was told by my pastor, Lent is about your penance, not everyone else's. That's why on Ask Wednesday, I say, do not give up coffee if that's your addiction, because you're going to make everybody around you miserable. Yes, it's a penitential time, but it's a personal penitential time, not everyone having to pay penance for your sins. Sorry, random tangent. But... So we look at Cain and Abel, what is Cain's response when Abel is blessed? The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Already it's setting us up, we know, we know what the rest of the story is. So Cain was very angry and dejected, and the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you dejected? If you act rightly, you will be accepted. But if not, sin lies in wait at the door. It's urges for you, yet you can rule over it. We don't have to be shackled by sin. Basically is the heart of this. What's interesting is when we look at this story of Cain and Abel, we rarely look at it as Cain acting in sin. What was his sin? What did we talk about in the garden? What was that first inclination towards sin? Doubt. Cain's sin was the same sin as Eve in the garden. Doubt. He doubted he could live without. He didn't ultimately put his trust in God. And this continues on through time and time in Scripture. The warning of the flood with Noah, the Tower of Babel. We thought we could do better without God, time and time again. And so I don't have enough time to go through all of these like I wanted to because, well, I talk too much. But when we look at really those first five scriptural things of the fall of man, Cain and Abel, warning of the flood and Noah, and the Tower of Babel, what we see is us falling for the same trap time and time and time again. And we can fall anywhere on that spectrum of doubt, shame, or doubt, fear, shame, sin. Ultimately, though, when we doubt God, what is the definition of sin? It's an action, a thought, or a desire contrary to the love of God, basically. And if we look at that as a definition of sin... Why would doubt of God be not only a near occasion of sin, but a cause of sin? Because we are not putting trust in him who is the truth. We have a whole society that says, well, we have it on our money, in God we trust. Yeah, actions speak louder than words, guys. Um, we are trying to kick God out of anything and everything. As I mentioned, I think on Saturday night's homily, but I did not mention on Sunday, I found it interesting last week, I was playing one of my Facebook games, because that's how I distract myself, is gaming. And so in one of the Facebook games, they always ask, so what do you do? I'm a Catholic priest. Oh, really? 
So it's like, and then the fight started. So I'm a Catholic priest. Okay, why then, and those of you that came on Saturday, you've already heard this. Why then do you believe as a priest that you can forgive sins? Well, I mean, it's scriptural. Um, I, I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And um, what did he do? He forgave sins. Then what did he do after he forgave sins? He gave the authority to forgive sins to who? The apostles. What was the first thing that happened after Judas died? They named another apostle. They laid hands on him, bestowing upon him the same powers that Jesus bestowed upon them. So the apostles can give the authority to others. The descendants of the apostles can continue that same tradition. Why do we in the Catholic Church find it so important to talk about the lineage of our ancestry from Peter to the popes and bishops today? Because that's where the authority to do the sacraments comes from. Not from the apostles. From Christ. From God. Who gave that authority and ability to men, the apostles, the disciples, who then gave it to the next generation, and next generation, and next generation, to Archbishop Coakley, who then, when he laid hands on me, gave me that same ability. So why do I believe I can forgive sins? I don't. I believe that I am acting in the person of Christ, in persona Christi, when I perform the sacraments. When I am up here at Mass, I am what is called in persona Christi. I am there acting in the person of Christ. Not play acting, but through the power of ordination, I am standing in in the place of Christ. When I'm in the confessional, I am there in the place of Christ. In fact, one of the most misunderstood gospel parables talks about this without talking about it. When we talk about the story of the Good Samaritan, what do we normally get from that? Man, that Samaritan really loved his enemy. What do we normally get out of it on the negative? The priest turned his back, and so did the Levite. We have to look at the culture of the time. The understanding of that time is a priest much must be ritualistically pure to perform his duty in the temple. The priest was on his way at that time to the temple to perform the sacrifice. If he had stopped, he could not do his duty. Same thing with the Levites, the Levite being the priestly class. If they had stopped, and this isn't to excuse that, oh, well, one ministry is more important than another. If I have a heart attack during the Mass and the consecration has already happened, my expectation as priest is that you guys will move me to the side, call an ambulance. As soon as I'm being taken care of, someone will step up and continue the liturgy. That is the expectation at Mass. If we haven't gotten to the consecration yet, we can't use the bread because it hasn't been consecrated. We can't use the wine, but I always have a full ciborium. Just in case I get COVID and I can't come to mass and we have to have a communion service. Just in case I die of a heart attack or a stroke because it's in my family. If at any time you see me collapse, tend to me immediately, but then keep going on through the liturgy. What we have learned since that parable of the Good Samaritan is what Christ showed to us that's different in our understanding of the worthiness of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Of the person that does the sacrament. The sacrament's validity does not depend on the purity of the person doing the sacrament. So when people came during the priest abuse scandals and asked the question of, my kid was baptized, confirmed, received first communion, went to, confirm, went to confession from somebody that has committed egregious sins that is now on the list, that has now been defrocked, that is now no longer in the church, that is now in prison, that are, fill in the blank with any of those, was that a valid sacrament? As long as they followed proper matter and form, we'll get into this in three weeks, the last week of uh, October, as long as they follow the proper matter and form for the sacrament, it is valid. Matter and form do not change, 
based on the worthiness or the purity of the person performing the sacrament. Following me so far? That's changed in the understanding of the church from the Jewish church to the Christian church. That was a big change. It was the worthiness of the Levite class. It was the worthiness of the priest. It was the, the purity of the priest that allowed them to perform the sacrifices. That was one of my fears my first year as a priest because it's like, okay, I haven't been to confession and I'm celebrating mass. Am I, am I in the state of grace to be able to celebrate mass, let alone receive communion? Well, that's on my soul when I'm up here. What I do when I distribute communion is I'm doing a function for the church. It's valid. The same thing if we have lectors, if we have Eucharistic ministers. Yes, they should go to confession. Yes, they should be in the state of grace. But if not, it doesn't invalidate them lecturing. It does not invalidate them giving out communion. And we'll get into that when we talk about reconciliation specifically in December. But that's important for us to know. All of those worries, concerns that many times pop up in the church really stem from a misunderstanding of the love of God. God blesses everyone. Not everyone accepts God's blessings. But whether I accept his blessing or not, if I'm standing in the person of Christ in that moment, it is Christ responding through me. And as long as I don't do anything that is against matter and form, the sacrament is valid and licit. Many times, and we'll talk about this again in, at the end of October, we, we are struggling less with the validity of a sacrament and more with the liceity of a sacrament. Licitness deals with the legality, canon law, of the sacrament. Anybody can validly do X, Y, or Z, but only licitly, legally, X, Y, and Z. So when we talk about like the mass, pre-Vatican II, there were certain things that if you did wrong was considered a mortal sin during the mass. We look at that now and say, eh, we may have been a little off on that. And that's not a changing in church teaching, but it's understanding based on new information. It doesn't change, but it adapts. The church is always growing, always learning, because the church is the body of Christ. We learn from the head. So I realize I didn't get to 90% of what I want to get to tonight, but I think we can really leave today's class with an understanding of where sin comes from. The fall of man, that concupiscence that we have in our hearts, initially in the garden started from doubt. Went from doubt to fear. Went from fear to shame, or shame to fear, either way. And that means that we hold it inside. But when we bring our sins to the light, it's amazing how much the light shines. How many times have we looked at someone who has done something egregious in the past that has come out in the light and said, I made a horrible mistake. And now instead of defining them by their mistake, we're defining them by the courage it took to get through that mistake. When we look at women that go to Rachel's Vineyard, which is a support group for um, women that have um, had an abortion, that is a courageous group. When we go and talk about AA, when we talk about NA, when we talk about SA, the people that go to those meetings are able to speak out loud how they have sinned, how they have wronged themselves, how they have wronged others, how they have wronged God. And how am I trying to do it differently? One of the number one things I tell people that, that, are in, that are struggling with sin, when was the last time you journaled? I've never journaled, Father, start. If you find that you have a vice, a habitual sin that you commit, start documenting it. Document what happened right after and what happened right before. Because what we will find is we have what are called near occasions of sin. You have a trigger that sets you off. Is it doubt? Is it grief? Is it a situation? Is it a person? Is it a conversation? Is it a beer ad on TV? Is it a song? And once you can figure out what those triggers that are those near occasions of sin are, 
those things have been brought to the light. We can then recognize them. For instance, and I've talked about this before, um, within a year of our house getting hit by a tornado, I was struggling with grief and didn't even realize it. I would randomly start crying and say, what is this? I mean, I, I, I'm a crybaby. My dad said he had the gift of tears and I just called him a crybaby. And so I start crying randomly when songs would come on the radio and it's like, what is that about? And then it clicked one day. We had gone to a concert a month after the tornado called the Healing in the Heartland concert. You guys may remember that in the city. Anytime any of the songs that were played at that concert came on, I would immediately get emotional. Ah, that's a trigger to grief. I didn't know how to process it until I began to recognize what the trigger was. So when certain songs come on the radio and I'm having a bad day, I will change the station. Some days I will sit there and say, where am I in this grief? Because that's important for us to process as well because grief is not a ladder process. It's very circular. And that's one of the big tricks that Satan doesn't want us to believe is that sin many times is circular as well. Why do we talk about an addict, once an addict, always an addict? Because anything can trigger you to falling off that wagon and putting you back to where you were at that moment. Any sin can and will do that. And Satan knows exactly which button to push because he's pushed them before and you didn't realize they existed. But the more knowledge that we have of our buttons, the more we can do something to affect how they, they control us. Again, we don't have to be slaves to sin. We can choose love. We can choose to respond or to react. We've got about three minutes. Any questions about sin, fall of man, what we've been talking about tonight? I went a whole lot faster than I thought it would. No, 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 no. Great question, great question. Do I still eat my steaks well done? That is heresy. Um, no, uh, I, as a seminarian, um, Father Tim Lucian, God bless him, he, um, we had a penance service. Normally when you have a penance service at one of the parishes, uh, there's a meal for the priest afterwards. So he, so he invited us over. He's a great chef, learned from Father Gallatin, just amazing. And he had made this beef tenderloin, beautiful cut and had glazed in this thing. He made it rare. I thought, oh, I'm not eating that. Danny, you're eating it. I'm not touching that. You're going to eat this. It was kind of the whole conversation with my parents growing up. I said, fine, I'll eat it. First bite, it's like, wow. I will not order a steak cooked better than medium rare. Um, but I normally order them rare because no restaurant in their right mind makes them rare anymore. They always go kind of medium rare. But there's some places where it's say, I want it just shy of mooing. Like, go, chop it, bring it in. If you poke it and it moves, put it on, flip, flip it over one more time, and then we're good. They're like, really? He's like, yeah. That's really good. Yeah, so no, I definitely don't eat my steaks well anymore. Oh. They've got some friends doing it's like, want some ketchup? Yes, please. Oh, my gosh. But we all learn. We grow. Other questions? Yes, Teresa. Yes, so the question was, what about the priests that have left the church or, or left the active priesthood and been married? Um, your priest forever in line of Melchizedek. With that, I would ask the same question of what about the priests that are validly ordained that are also validly married? So when we look at the sacraments, and we'll get into this when we talk specifically about matrimony and specifically when we talk about holy orders, there's kind of an order of operation like we have in math. You can be married and then get ordained. You cannot be ordained and then be married. So just like we have annulments to annul the yes, I do for, for marriages, there's an annulment type process for priests saying, I didn't know when I said I do, I do, I do, I do with the help of God. I didn't know what I, what I was saying when I meant that. So what they do is, and we'll get into the specifics of that. Please remind me that day. So I'll look just more of the canon long and catechism on that as we get closer. But basically they can still be admitted to communion because they can still repent of their actions. Good question. We are done with time. Let us end with prayer.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for this day and for revealing to us the ways that the evil one works. We pray on this feast of the archangels of Gabriel, Michael, and Raphael, that you may continue to send our guardian angels to us this day and continue to protect us from the evil ones and the wickedness and snares of the devil. As we pray together, the St. Michael prayer. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks, guys.